Welcome to Ricochet's Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute, The Week Magazine, and CNBC. Each week, the podcast features a lively conversation with top thinkers and doers on the most important and interesting economic and policy issues of our time. Archived episodes can be found at ricochet.com and follow-up blog posts and transcripts at AEI.org. My guest today is American Enterprise Institute scholar Claude Barfield, who specializes in international trade policy, science, and technology. Uh, so no prize. We're gonna, surprise, we're going to be talking about trade today, uh, one of the biggest economic issues uh, in this election, uh, maybe a bit bigger on the Republican side, but uh, really in the presidential primaries of both parties where you have uh, Donald Trump and, and Bernie Sanders, both of whom are very skeptical of U.S. trade deals and how we've been conducting trade policy. So, Claude, let me let me start off just by asking kind of more of a broader uh, macro question. Why are U.S. trade deficits so darn big, hundreds of billions of dollars a year, every year? Uh, are they a sign of economic weakness? Are they a sign of just really badly negotiated trade deals because our trade negotiators are dopes and China's are just brilliant individuals? So just to start out, why are they so big? Well, I think you have to start out with our trade deficit or current account deficit with the with the rest of the world and not with one country. And the reason we've had uh, trade deficits for the last four decades is because of a simple macroeconomic fact. If you don't uh, save enough, and that's both government saving and uh, government having a surplus, or and the private sector or individuals having saving more than they consume, then if you total that up. Uh, if you don't have enough, somebody will do it for you, and the people who do it for you are those who sell us goods. Uh, and we have not, for, 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 as I say, 40 years, been able to put our own macroeconomic house in order. And so before you get to China or Japan or Europe, individual trade deficits, you need to make the point that overall in a given year, if that's the case, we will be running a trade deficit with someone. If it's not with China, or if the China deficit were to go down, it would go go up somewhere else because that's really the background fact. Uh, and it doesn't really betoken either weakness or strength. Uh, I think in the United States case, uh, the place, the times we've had the, the biggest trade deficits are times when we actually have been uh, growing at a faster rate and consuming more uh, than the rest of the world. For instance, you take the 1990s, which is a, a golden look back as a golden period, one could disagree or agree with that, uh, under Bill Clinton, where we had uh, growing trade deficits, but we also had a huge, huge increase in employment and, and great growth. The same thing happened after 2001 to 2007, uh, when you had before the, the big recession. Uh, again, our trade deficit was growing, but so was our economy growing, and uh, we were running trade deficits because others were not growing as fast. Well, maybe, and uh, well, maybe this next question will help uh, maybe illustrate some of the points you're making there. Uh, I mean, there are other countries, advanced economies, who have uh, who maybe they're running trade deficits with China, but they're much much smaller. And I'll think of uh, of Germany. Germany um, certainly uh, exports a lot from China. The trade deficit as a share of the economy is typically maybe you know a half, a quarter, a fifth. Uh, as a share of GDP of what our trade deficit is. So they run a much smaller trade deficit. And uh, is that is that again, is that because they have better negotiators or is it because just the structure of the German economy 
is different. I mean, why? So you well, two, I think I go back to have the same yeah. explanation there that you have. I mean, this, this, the explanation I gave for the United States uh, covers other nations too. And the, and the Germans in general have had their economic house in order in the sense that they have not run big budget deficits internally. They've had a high savings rate relative to the United States. Um, it's also true that in some areas, the so-called Mittelstande, the, the sort of middle-sized manufacturing uh, segments in particularly South and Southwest Germany, uh, you do you have a residual strength, so it, it kind of adds up. But again, it's not it has little or nothing to do with uh, their trade policy, or in fact, the Germans no longer actually negotiate trade agreements. It's done by the European, uh, nor do any other European Union com- companies. Uh, countries that's done by the European Union. So again, it it has to do with the basic uh, sort of economic facts of the economy, and not with any particular trade agreement or any particular trade policy. So what? Okay, uh, just to stick on that point for one more minute. So what would, so so what would the U.S. economic situation, um, budget deficit saving, what would it look like, or how would it be different than what it is now? That would result in much let's say much smaller trade deficits or even well, trade surpluses you would, you would just to take the largest things i mean the the federal government is sort of the biggest actor here so if you get get the economic uh, its economic house in order in terms of not running such large trade uh, in, in, uh, individual budget deficits uh you could have uh, uh, incentives for saving in the United States that people have talked about for years uh, those kinds of things would turn the budget the overall uh, current account or budget surplus or, or deficit around, uh, and that's the only way to do that. In terms of the, our total, the, the total uh, trade deficit or surplus we'd have with the world, right. nothing. W- whether we have trade agreements or don't have trade agreements, that is an underlying fact that is not uh, that does not is not affected by whether you have a trade agreement. Or not. But th- but is the size of those deficits can is, is that at all influenced by yes. the kind of tra- trade agreements? So is there could we negotiate a better deal uh, with China? And I want to get to the currency in a minute. But could we negotiate some sort of better deal? Maybe the cur- maybe currency is part of that. That would result in a much a much smaller trade deficit. No, as a general, uh, we could we don't we haven't negotiated. The only negotiation we've been in uh, with the Chinese is not a bilateral one, but with the World Trade Organization, right? Uh, which actually, despite the fact that it, it's people tout this as somehow the beginning of the end, uh, it did have to, did it didn't go all the way. But the Chinese made a lot of trade liberalization uh, and investment liberalization concessions to get into the WTO, so we benefited. We and and our exports to China have grown tremendously since 2001 when they got in. Now, because of our own situation here, rather than any trade deal, we haven't had we didn't have a trade deal except for the WTO. We've also run a big bigger trade deficit with them. But that's because we are, as I say, that's because of the background macroeconomic facts. And right if it now, had the, not been uh, with China, it would have been with somebody else. Now, but now the uh, the Trump theory is listen, it's basically all about the chinese currency that it's really really undervalued and if only only uh that's being you know you know pushed down by the chinese government and if they weren't manipulating their currency uh u.s trade deficits would be a lot less so that so it is it is almost a form of economic warfare by the chinese government against the united states so what is the role of their their currency in those big trade deficits well 
I, I think it, it is true that you might at times over the last let's say the last two decades, uh, the 90s and, and after 2000, on the margin, even given the macroeconomic uh, points that I made, the trade deficit over uh, trade currency manipulation, so-called, uh, can have a marginal effect. But if you look back at the history of, let's just take the bilateral relations, though, you'd have to sort of look at the impact of the rest of the world, but just for us uh, and the Chinese, the Chinese actually, through much of the 90s, followed the dollar. So they actually didn't uh, devalue or, or cut their currency during the 1990s when the dollar was going up in value. The, time, the crucial time was that they, they did begin to manipulate a bit in 2002, 2007, th that period. Uh, and, but uh, we, uh, it didn't really have a huge effect, and it wasn't the largest thing that had to do with the increasing trade deficit between the, the bilateral trade deficit. And as I said, that had to do with the fact that we didn't have our, our economic house in order. Recently, they have actually – they now have, over the last three or four years uh, – it's not so much they take po took positive steps, so they took steps not to intervene, and so the uh, the currency uh, has come what the World Bank and the IMF count as close to the you know the market value what the market value would be. So you really can't blame you know recent years trade deficit with China on any currency manipulation. The same thing is true by and large with the Japanese, which have been been tied at tagged at times. Uh, with uh, with uh, manipulating the currency. I mean, that, so those thing, are really kind of old old stories because oftentimes you know what i'll hear donald trump and hill uh, and, I, and i've heard him talk about these issues they have video of him in the 80s talking about those issues and it seems like the, the situation he's describing may have been true in the 1980s and with china may have been true years ago but it's not really sort of where we are in at the moment now this 16. could change i mean the chinese could intervene you know given the the uh uh, troubles they're having internally in terms of the domestic economy and their attempted transition from a you know export-led uh, investment-led economy, they could intervene again. I mean, this is not to say this is this is uh, in, in perpetuity, but certainly over the last few years, you you couldn't uh, you couldn't argue that the other this is a two-way street. Uh, as, as some people may know, and probably most of listeners don't know, uh, the United the the, the uh, it's also argued that the United States Federal Reserve has acted to the the quantitative so-called quantitative easing. While it may not have been aimed at cutting the value of the dollar, it certainly had that effect. And so uh, when we accuse other nations of this, they come back and say, well, uh, of manipulating. Right. They come back and say, well, your Federal Reserve, which has a lot more power in the world than other institutions, is doing very much the same thing for your economy or has done so. Two, two particular issues uh, that often get brought up here in this trade debate. One, that there are these barriers or subsidies uh, that China engages in, legal export subsidies and other unfair advantages, which give them – an edge. To what extent is that a big factor uh, in U.S. trade relations with China? Well, I think it is a factor, but I don't think it. it uh, I don't think it. Uh, it's you know among the largest factors in the United States um, over the past decade, and certainly under the Obama administration, though this began under Bush, um, has really taken China to task and taking them to taking them to the WTO, and we have won a number of cases. Uh, so there is the question of export subsidies. I think is is a problem. Uh, as well as in certain sectors in agriculture and a lot of certain one of the services, uh, while the the uh, Chinese did open up as a part of their WTO obligations, uh, there are still areas where there is protection. The one thing that to keep in mind that's interesting about China is that it is a very different political, uh, excuse me, development 
uh, pattern than than earlier patterns of Japan, let's say Korea, which were more not totally, but a kind of mercantilism of the 20th century and an early 21st century. That I think they show, show you that now. You can't really say that China did that because China did something that Japan and, and Korea did not do, and that is, by and large, they threw their economy open to foreign direct investment, which are very, was a very smart thing to do, by the way. Uh, but that means that you don't, you didn't have the kind of closed, totally closed economy, certainly in terms of investment. This is not to say that the United States and other countries, the Asian countries, European countries, have not had problems with investment. And certainly the Chinese have national champions and certainly in the some of the high tech, particularly electronic sec segments, section, sectors, they have, these, are, these have not been open. But it was a very different model. Uh, and it became more important in the 90s as a part of their joining the WTO. Along those lines, particularly gets mentioned a lot is China stealing U.S. intellectual profit, property, whether it's copying things or whether it's hacking and stealing property. Again, how large of a problem is that and, it, and does it make a significant difference in the economic relationship between the United States and China? Well, I think it is a large problem, uh, uh, and, and the United States is, is only gradually coming to grips with that. Uh, and it's a very you know tough tough thing to do, particularly uh, in the era era of the internet, since a lot of this has to do with just the, with the hacking you were talking about. We are, I think, too slowly, but the administration, the Obama administration, is finally about to take them to task in an individual on on that is unilaterally on our own part. And while I am very skeptical sometimes of interventions that are that are unilateral, I think we have reached a time where that when, as we saw with the uh, with the Chinese officers two years ago, that the United States ought to, you know, chapter and verse and bring the Chinese to uh, to uh, to a trial, even if it's only in our own in our own economy. I don't think we could do. It's very tough in terms of the WTO or any international uh, uh, oblig obligations they have because that really isn't covered. So that we're going to we have to end up doing this. I think unilaterally as we should do uh, more and more. Well, do, well how, I mean, how big of a problem is it in, in, in billions? It's I mean, hard. You know, how you much see, do they steal every year in billions? <laughs> I, we don't know. And this, I'll tell you what, what makes it difficult. And you've had you've had estimates. By various think tanks or universities, it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, but you really can't. I mean, the, it is tough to trace, and that's why it's tough to go at them in terms of, let's say, uh, hacking, because you have to you have to not, not only know that it was stolen and be able to track that. Some, let's say, uh, some the patent that you've gotten just gotten on a new widget uh, in telecommunications. But then you have to actually show that that actually appeared or was used by a Chinese company. Now, what what we think is that often the Chinese government uh, intervenes for the company and passes things on to the U.S. Com to the Chinese company, but that's not a, not an easy thing to prove. You have to show, you know, where it was you, that this was what was stolen and how it was used in some later device or product. All right. So, um, so then, to what extent are to the various issues that we've already talked about? To what extent then are these issues that are uh, are issues that can be negotiated. And I think even more importantly, to what extent should we be employing things like, as uh, uh, Trump suggests, you know, uh, a tariff, a tariff, I mean, maybe not permanently, but a very large tariff to sort of get their attention and give us negotiating leverage uh, over them. Is that, I mean, 
is that well, how you problem, is that how you would conduct you know, negotiation? And what would what no. would those negotiations be about exactly? <laughs> well, I think let's talk about the. You, you can have, and I think you know we are negotiating, and I'm in favor of. I'm not very sanguine about it, but we are negotiating a bilateral investment treaty with the with the Chinese. I think ultimately the here's where the model of the TPP becomes quite important. Because the TPP really sets down a very much advanced that's Pacific, rules. That's the Pacific Trade Trans Pacific uh, yep, Pact, yep. and the Chinese express some interest uh, in, in joining. And I think that on that side, there's, you can negotiate. The idea of unilaterally uh, putting on tariffs of 35, 40 percent, 45 percent, as, as uh, Trump and others have talked about, is really self-defeating on our part. Now, let me before I get to the economics. We would we have been we have pushed since the Second World War for a rules-based trading system, and one of the th- the first things that people did was to bind themselves to particular tariffs, and we are bound to tariff rates, and they are, and the Chinese are bound now that the WTO, so we would be breaking the rules-based system that we we set in place unilaterally. Secondly, as as econ- all economists who've reacted to this have said, this is self-defeating. Uh, they would certainly retaliate. Uh, the other thing is that uh, even more direct in terms of trade flows, at least 40% of what we're importing from the Chinese are parts and components. And so they're going to U.S. firms. And so if we are raising tariffs on these parts and components and not just raising tariffs on things that would hurt the Chinese, uh, but we're hurting, we'll be hurting our own companies. And the other thing is that the Chinese, where they really have a strong trade surplus with us are in sort of lower manufacturing things such as textiles and shoes and toys and particularly with with clothing and uh with with textiles and other things that's where the united States, in the u.s and any other country uh the people who have less money spend more of their uh money on these basic goods and so it would really be hurting uh it's an anti-social thing in terms of our own population right so uh people go to walmart all of a sudden everything I don't know, forty-five uh, percent more expensive. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't translate exactly to forty-five or thirty-five, but it would certainly be a good portion of that. I mean, but I, but I think, I, but I think the Trump plan would be that would be that that is a that is a lever over China um, that would uh, that would that we would it would hurt them more than it would hurt us. So eventually, they would give in to some degree to our we we we'd cut a deal with them. Of course, it would be in our favor because we're all, we'd always be winning. So it would be a deal greatly benefiting us. That we have a, that we have enough economic uh, leverage over China that if we chose to use it and chose to use that all the tools are advantage, uh, we could cut a better deal. Uh, jobs would come home, trade deficit would shrink, and no more jobs, more economic growth. I mean, I think that's that's the strategy. Well, I, you know, I I don't think it's necessarily true that we. I mean, the Chinese economy now is as large as ours, so uh, they have economic power too. But the second thing is the last things that trade that you just mentioned that Trump says the trade deficit would not shrink. Uh, jobs would not come. Some jobs might come home, but not most jobs would not come home. That's those are government. The trade deficit, as I've said, is government macroeconomics. So if we we cut it with China, we'd have it with somebody else as long as we have the same situation at home. And the second thing is uh, in terms of jobs coming back, it, some jobs are coming back, uh, but those have to do with issues that are not related to, to the trade, it, to the trade agreements. And it, it's an experiment that I think the United it would be highly dangerous for the United States, I think, to undertake. We don't know how it would, would, uh, would come out, as a matter of fact. Maybe paint for me, not a worst case scenario, but what a, what a U.S.-China trade, I don't want to say trade war, trade conflict, what what does that look like in the context of the U.S. economy and the global economy? Because uh, right now, think you know the U.S. 
growing very slowly. The global economy doesn't still look great as we're still sort of winding our way back here after the Great Recession. Now put it out. Now add to that a trade conflict between the world's two largest economies. We don't know exactly where this would end up. It could be just tit for tat. It is true, though Trump doesn't raise this, that we are less dependent on trade than a lot of other nations and including the Chinese. But it still you would not be the repercussions would go beyond the United States and China, and particularly when you think about the fact that we are both, that is the Chinese and the United States are involved in worldwide and certainly region-wide, let's say in Asia, uh, supply chains. And so if we if the two elephants get in a fight, in, in a fight, it's the smaller animals that really that really get hurt. And so you wouldn't know where, how this how this would ripple out. I think uh, it would certainly create a lot more turmoil well, than just the specific, you know. Well, let's well, let's what, we let's might... narrow let's narrow it down. How will that how will that affect me getting an iPhone seven? Well, it would probably you, you, the the supply supply chain would certainly be cut. I mean, the, it would not affect. I and mean, one of the things the, the miss is that uh, you know this is where our trade statistics have not caught up with supply chains. It's true that. You know, the, you take the iPhone; it's produced in you know a dozen or 15, 20 countries, uh, and each adds up and it goes back and forth, and that's what would be disrupted, by the way, with the trade fight between us, trade battle between us. But then it, it ends up in being assembled in China, and so you, that that not only would the Chinese part would be disrupted, but also the 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 uh, the supply chain in between. And so, you know, who who knows? iPhone, Apple would scramble to get you know other sources, but that would take months, if not ye- well, certainly years, to put that all back together. It would have, a, in other words, the point is you're getting a disruptive effect beyond what you just think about, oh, we'll just slap a, a 45% trade or 30% tariff, uh, and then you know we'll just work it out in a bilateral way. It'd be much bigger than that. I guess, I, I guess what it sounds like is that, that there's a lot of economic sort of nostalgia about trade uh, that kind of harkens back to what the, what the U.S. looked like you know, 50, uh, even 60 years ago and kind of misses what's been happening with globalization where, again, you have these global supply chains putting putting products together. You know, we may be doing a lot of the high value design work, but they're being assembled elsewhere. So we're sort of sort of tightly knit with in, the, in these global supply chain uh, supply chains with other countries. And what some people are suggesting is just sort of a a severing of that and kind of that we're going to go back to where we were in the 1950s and everything is going to sort of be made inside the United States. We're not going to be the, uh, dependent on anybody. To me, what, what it looks like is sort of North Korean economic policy. We're going to, we're going to be completely self-sufficient, not need the world. We're going to keep all our stuff here. We're going to keep all the jobs here. And I, I, I don't think I don't think that's a better world, is it? No, it's not, and particularly where the United States is now. I mean, if you look back and the, the nostalgia goes, it certainly doesn't go to the 1930s. <laughs> right. It goes to the 50s and 60s when we came, when the rest of the world was either physically shattered, uh, or the economies weren't weren't really functioning, and so of course we we uh, we looked dominant and we were dominant. And I think because of our free market system, we've remained. Like we can fight about different parts of it, but it's but it's certainly been a, an engine for growth. And the whole business of suddenly in the last three or four decades, uh, as Trump says, we don't produce anything anymore and all the jobs are going to China. It's just not true. I mean, the, the, the key factor here, as economists again have said again and again, is that while we may, there may be some questions about productivity at this moment, 
it's rising productivity, which is which has produced uh, this enormous output in the United States. We are still, and we're about to be again the number one producer of manufactured products. We're number two with China now, but I think the World Bank projects that in the early 20s we will come back to the fourth. In other words, while we have lost jobs within the manufacturing sector, not lost, but we have downsized in terms of the use of labor, it's because productivity has grown, not because of anything that happened with with uh, with trade agreements or opening up to trade. It's just that we produce, uh, we are now really, one of, again, a major producer of of goods, uh, and we've all, and, and now increasingly with, with services where we Actually, run a, a, a surplus all the time. Well, so that so actually, actually one final. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. I'll, 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 I'll ask a question. Maybe you can tie your answer in. Is that so? If you're really so, if you're concerned about manufacturing jobs, if you're concerned about those jobs, then you really need a two-part policy. You need to sort of build and smash. You need to build. You need to build those trade barriers, and then you need to smash the machines because it's really been you know productivity and automation that's really co- sort of cost the bulk of those manufacturing jobs, even though the output's gone up, total manufacturing employment's uh, gone down. But since, you know, we don't really don't think about that. We just, we just kind of think about trade and China since it's so obvious uh, and it's kind of a scapegoat, but that yet if you're talking about, you know, creating good jobs, trade certainly over the longer term is going to mean a more productive and innovative economy. And that should produce better jobs, I would hope. That's exactly right. Uh, and the other thing is that, um, and one of the points I'd, that, bring up because it's so much a part of this debate is that everyone has focused on what is a very good paper by David Autor and some of his uh, co-authors about the imp- the shock and the impact of China uh, in terms of the U.S. labor force and in terms of manufacturing jobs. We're in some, we're in some regions uh, which were really exposed to yes. trade for China. Uh, yes. They, they yes. just never kind of came back. People, they didn't That's act right. like the economic models. People didn't move. They didn't find jobs in other sectors. They just sort of remained depressed. Right. But in some circles, it is, it, is, it is said, okay, we have a new trade uh, paradigm now as opposed to an old trade paradigm. But one of the things I'd like to point out that let, and people could quibble about authors, exact authors, exact numbers, but his paper is part of a moving target also. I remember in the 1990s, early 90s, writing correctly that you couldn't really say that trade with our trade with developing countries or even with NAFTA had an impact on the U.S. economy, because whether it was whether it was Mexico or the sub-Saharan Africa where the you know wages were lowest or wherever, we just didn't trade with those countries. China did change things in the fact that you did. This is a huge economy where you had a very quick movement to compete. But the auto paper is, is in a sense, and maybe in, not obsolete, but or out of out of you know filter. But a lot of that transition. I'm not talking about the end of the United States yet. I'm talking about in terms of competition. Chinese wages are have grown tremendously. China is moving to other other sectors, so that it is a snap. The auto paper is a snapshot in time. It is not that there is suddenly a new set. <laughs> of economic principles that relate to trade. It's just a moving target that we've had. And by the 2025 or 2030, it will be that, that too will have moved on. And, and it's and also sh- true that the problem that you face is that the, the uh, we had in the midst of this a, an enormous, the, the worst recession since the 1930s. And so adjustment was, was bound to be slower because of the depth of the crisis, I think. Right. And this is not to say that this is not a problem, 
but it's not a problem that is baked into somehow economic theory about trade. And I, and I mean, and also, you know, as wages have gone up, uh, and China's doing trying to do more sort of high high value added stuff. I mean, they're they're automating. There's a, there's a huge automation push on in in China. So when we talk about bringing jobs back, what you're I think what you're saying in essence is you want is you want American robots to do the job of Chinese robots. The idea that there's going to be that 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 we're going to be shuttering factories in China. And there's going to be Americans doing the, you know, human Americans, not robot Americans, human Americans doing the job that human Chinese are doing. Uh, again, that's a very nostalgic, backward-looking view that doesn't all reflect sort of, you know, where uh, trends are, are going. And we don't have much time, but so I did want to ask you if you were if you were the uh, a, tr- uh, a trade czar, appointed U.S. trade czar. So what what changes would you make at all uh, in U.S. Uh, trade policy with China or more generally? Well, I think um, I think that te- I'm hoping that the next administration, Republican or Democrat, will come back to. Uh, I think the I think the TPP is a very good model. The Trans-Pacific Pact is a very good model. Is it an adv- it is an advance on liberalization, and I think the it, assuming that you have more than a, a single term for the next president, uh, I think there would be time that you, you get the the Trans-Pacific uh, in order, and then turn to Europe, and then go back to the W the World Trade Organization. Because that's where you really it's the it's from an economist's point of view, it's the world economy that you're looking at. And even as large as the Trans-Pacific is going to be and the TPP would be, uh, I think that's where you really ought to go in terms of our trade negotiating priorities. And China would be a part of that. I think politically, I think it would be easier also to advance liberalization, including China, within the WTO than trying to have, let's say, it seems to me economically impossible, even if our economy really zooms, let's say, in the next eight years, a bilateral trade agreement with China and the United States, uh, I think, is not, is not politically possible. Uh, beyond that, I mean, I think the, the, the other thing I would keep in mind, which, again, the Trans-Pacific Partnership got much more than I thought, and that is to look at newer sectors. I mean, the rules that we got for the internet in terms of the trade rules I'm talking about are still astonishing to me that uh, how much uh, the other, the other, those other 11 nations agreed to. And, you know, that's, that's the, the kind of thing that's the wave of the future for the United States where our comparative advantage is. Claude, Hey, uh, I appreciate, I'd like to bring you back, talk uh, a bit more about trade in the future, but thanks for being on the podcast today. 